Gemma and I have a special guest with us today. We've got Michelle O. We're so fortunate to have her joining the podcast. I met Michelle on ADP list. And then strangely enough, we were going to a conference like in the next few weeks and we had already had a session booked and we thought, why not catch up in real life? Little did I know, Michelle was presenting a keynote speaker for that event. <laughs> I hadn't done my homework. I didn't know. She was on the agenda and you were my favorite speaker. How the stars have aligned. We could just jump straight in and give us a brief background about who you are, your story. Well, thank you so much, firstly, Chloe and Gemma, for bringing me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for being so kind about my talk at the Design Research Conference. I think it was like one of my first like larger scale talks like presenting in front of a whole room and it's nice to have you know a smiling face in the audience looking back at you giving you reassurance during your talk going yes keep going I'm listening <laughs> so yeah it was great to meet you then and it's been great to have continued conversations it's really lovely to meet you today too Gemma um, so your question was like a bit of background about me and where I am currently in my role in the design industry. So um, if we go like way back, I actually used to study optometry and then eventually moved into technology consulting and then eventually moved into design research, user experience and service design work, mainly in the context of technology implementations and then moved into my role at Center for Inclusive Design as an inclusive design researcher and service designer. Um, it's a not-for-profit design agency, so consulting type work still. And then I moved into eHealth New South Wales, a New South Wales government agency um, that delivers digital health solutions across the New South Wales health network in a human-centered design capability building role. So doing training and raising awareness about how human-centered design will help us deliver better digital health solutions that actually meet the needs of the people who will be using the thing rather than what some people believe may be a good solution without consulting the end user and anyone who might be impacted by it. And then I came back to the center, <laughs> but in a different role. So I'm in a product management role now, looking at a new service offering that connects organizations that find traditionally underserved communities really hard to reach to be part of user or market research. So we're talking about the disability community, the LGBTQ plus community, um, our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples of Australia, our first Australians, and um, older Australians, uh, people who are less tech savvy, who might not be as comfortable with English, it might be their second language, or it might just not be their main language. Uh, the migrant experience, refugee experience, as well as people with lived experience of social um, exclusion or social vulnerability. So say things like homelessness. And we're connecting these organizations with our community of participants who love coming back to work with Center for Inclusive Design. But at the same time, there's a bit of a capability building element to it because we don't want um, any harm caused during the session. So we're coaching and supporting the facilitators um, to understand inclusive design and how to run sessions in a culturally appropriate and safe way. So I guess that's a my journey in a nutshell. You summed that up so well. Um, 
your journey sounds so seamless when you say it like that but I would love to know like how you navigated through this career pivot from optometry to digital design and ethics because making that transition can seem like quite difficult from an outsider perspective yes for sure it was very challenging and I guess like my too long didn't read of the journey was like you know the LinkedIn version of like this was the first thing and then the next thing and the next thing (laughs) but um the behind the scenes version was that it was like it was very challenging it was chaotic as well and I think that at the same time there's like uh there's also that like self-discovery piece to it like trying to figure out like what are my strengths where are my skills gaps um what kind of companies do I want to work for and don't I want to work for so there was a lot of that behind the scenes so I'm glad you asked that question because I think when we look at people and their journeys into the design industry, into design ethics and inclusion, it's not necessarily talked about upfront, all of Mm. the challenges that you go through. And so there's this like illusion of it being really easy to break into until you're actually in a position where you're trying to break into the field and you're like, oh shit, it's a bit hard. So I guess the first challenge was the initial pivot from optom a completely irrelevant degree Mm. into technology and I think I applied to like between 40 to 50 almost 50 application job applications trying to break into business or tech world 95 percent of those were either rejections or getting ghosted and I think like during that time it was also quite difficult because I'm a first generation Asian immigrant so my parents came from southern China and there's this like expectation in Asian culture where your kids like go into like those jobs that are stable and make you a lot of money including accounting law like some sort of healthcare, uh or like you know just those kinds of jobs mm. so I had really broken my relationship with my parents' expectations of me leaving what would be a great job for a girl, optometry, and going into this like ambiguous world of they didn't even understand what I wanted to do. Neither did I. And so um, I would say that what helped along that pivot was I kept learning and I kept pushing myself to um, learn on the side, self-learn via books. Uh, but also via online courses in customer experience, in user experience. I, at that time, also participated in, as well as facilitated, a career boot camp um, to learn things like design thinking, like interviewing skills, personal brand, and all of those things just ended up coming together to land a foot in the door in technology consulting firm Capgemini, And I had my eyes on Capgemini because they have a design agency attached to them, which was Mm. at that point called Idean, but now is called Frog because they acquired Frog and the brand of Frog was larger. And so Idean became Frog. But yeah, I joined that team knowing that I wouldn't necessarily be a designer yet, but I would be a customer experience consultant for the implementation of Salesforce solutions, a customer relationship management system. And I'd be working really closely with designers. So that was the pitch to me that it's not necessarily the role that I want to be in, 
but I get to work so closely with designers and design researchers that it's one step forward from where I am. And mm. it's a graduate program, so I get to learn business, technology, um, change management, just all of the skills that I never acquired from my vision science of Tom side, like learning. So I was like, you know what? This is great. And then went on my first service design project. And within six months, I moved into the design team. Uh, so that was the, the hard behind the scenes part. <laughs> Yeah, the stuff no one talks about. <laughs> it sounds super involved and there's a lot of risk in that process. Like, you know, the the risk, there's personal risk, there's even the, you know, the family expectation, there's career risk. I mean, you in, you invested all this time in your um, in your career already. And then to make a pivot, there's kind of, we have an equivalent of like a sunk cost fallacy where we're like, oh, I'm already this far in. Uh, do I just keep going? Or so it's incredibly, incredibly brave to be able to go through and uh, and actually commit to that. So kudos to you, kudos to you, Michelle, for being able to stick to it. And you're still here and I can hear the passion in your voice when you speak. So to me, I think that it sounds like the risk, the risk has paid off for sure. Thank um, God. Yeah, thank God. <laughs> um, I would love to hear and take a step back for a second. If we have anyone or any listeners who have never heard of inclusive design compared to other areas of design, how do you explain that to others? And how would you kind of explain it to me like I'm five, like I've never heard of this concept? What does, you know, inclusive design mean to you? So I'll give you like the the school book definition that we use. Sure. And- the conversational definition that we can then unpack and talk about. We love an overachiever. Give me both. (laughs) (laughs) School definition that we use that comes from the Inclusive Design Research Centre in Canada is inclusive design is design that considers the full range of human diversity with respect to age, ability, gender, sexual orientation, language, and all and any other forms of human difference that exist in 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 our humanity, I guess. Um, and when we say design, um, depending on what kind of designer you are, right? You think of a different type of design. The design in the word inclusive design is actually broader than, say, user experience design, broader than service design, and it talks. It it, it means any type of problem solving or creation of a thing that might include interact interactions between people or it might include interactions between a, a person and a thing so it may be a product digital or physical it may be an experience it may be a service it may be a policy or a process or it may even be the design of this conversation the design of an email which is a communication and an interaction between two people. So when we talk about inclusive design, it can apply to pretty much any context. And so the conversational definition of inclusive design is, well, when we're creating a new thing or trying to improve an existing thing or trying to solve a problem, have we actually considered the the multidimensional ways that us as unique individuals and our users and our audiences as unique individuals have we considered 
all of the unique and diverse ways that people will experience that thing and if not why not yeah actually that last that last section is important if not why why not I think that sounds, that's incredibly powerful, right? Because if you have to, if you have to answer why not, there's, there's almost an obligation or there's a sense of ownership that you are owning the reasons and taking accountability as to why you can't be inclusive. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you're met with like a lot of um, resistance as well at times, Michelle, where you have to keep your head up and keep advocating for um, what you want. Uh, for good reason how have you found that or how have you had success advocating and practicing around inclusive design I know you're in an environment that is supportive of it but you may not have always been in that kind of environment in your career so I guess yeah how are you how do you find advocating for it within your role so the approach that I find that seems to work and I think is also an approach that us the whole team at Center for Inclusive Design take is we hold space for courageous conversations. So inclusion always comes with exclusion, right? And it can feel quite confrontational, realizing that, oops, we've accidentally excluded like a whole population of people just because we had never had any lived experience of it or any exposure to other people's lived experiences that may be different to our own. And I would say that if we get to be designers and researchers, we're we're in quite a privileged position when it comes to the education that we've received, the opportunities we're able to receive as well. And so holding space for courageous conversations where we acknowledge like there's no one right way to go about inclusion. We're also going to get it wrong what inclusive looks like will change over time. So as an example, the language around disability, it um, used to be like really wrong to say a disabled person. And so the right language at one point was people with disability. But as we're evolving, as society is evolving and as like language and framing has evolved, the disability community, some of them are actually saying we're owning the label of disabled it's not a dirty word but it's also different depending on individuals so there's like actually no real right or wrong way of going about inclusion uh, but holding space and allowing for people to be wrong and ask like what might be a scary question to ask like oh can I do this can I say that um, that helps push for more inclusive design practices without it, without getting, you know, that resistance from it. And it reduces the fear um, and helps people build confidence. But if you're talking about like convincing stakeholders who just don't care, then there's also the business benefit of inclusive design and Center for Inclusive Design has a report, the benefits of designing for everyone where there are some stats So as an example, inclusively designed products and services can help you reach up to three to four times your intended audience. So if you can reach more people, it means more potential to make more money. And what businesses want is either A, to make more money or B, save more money. And so if you want to save more money, then doing um, inclusive design research helps you get like richer insights with less number of users as well. 
So we kind of, in a way, we, we push the agenda using multiple different approaches depending on the audience. I can imagine there's a huge difference when you're working with, you know, you mentioned earlier in like the government versus you're working in just general technology and different businesses will have different obligations. I mean, I think we're, we all have obligations, but there's almost different levels of severity that this holds depending on how that how that business engages with the community and the people involved you know I, I would like to think somewhere such as the government would have a little bit more of a little bit more involved in these pieces than perhaps a private company who you know considers it a, a nice to have um you mentioned earlier that your role is now in you know a little bit more of a product management space and we mentioned users and i'd love to hear a bit more about the tech specific area and I suppose how how you go about you know and how important it is to have some inclusive representation in something like tech that maybe may or may not have the same you know level of obligation or we feel like it does than some of the more traditional industries and you know what inclusive design looks like in a technology space. I love this question and I love that this is a topic of our discussion. So thinking about it, I actually had in mind three little stories slash examples that I think might help unpack this topic for us. So the first is, if we think about our phones, um, a lot of people nowadays have either an iPhone or an Android, right? And if you think about um, someone who uses the exact same model of smartphone as you do, it's the exact same hardware, but the things that we have on screen, on our home screens, the apps that we have, the settings that we have, it's completely different between two people with exactly the same phone. That is a really great example of personalization and inclusive design, where as a user, we choose how we want to engage with this thing and we make it meet our needs. Apple's iPhones, as an example, they have a lot of accessibility features, um, including things like being able to change the text size, change the contrast, um, use Siri as a voiceover. Um, and so it means that rather than putting the responsibility on the user to adapt to the technology, the technology is actually adapting to the user and serving us and our unique needs. And I think it's really important in this space because like technology is actually advancing pretty quickly. I think we're alive in a period of time in history where like things started happening and then they're like snowballing, right? And so when you're a designer in tech, let's say you look after a particular feature on a particular app, Imagine the number of people that you're actually affecting by pushing whatever feature that you've just changed. I, I think the reach that we can have in technology is so much larger and so at, at such a large scale compared to historically where, you know, you design a new poster and like five people walking past would see it. But if you release a poster now onto social media, hundreds and thousands and maybe even millions of people will be engaging with this. And so I think it's really important for designers and researchers and technologists in general to consider how the things that they're putting out into the world may be affecting people. 
and how our implicit biases are showing up in our design decisions. So second story is um, an example that I love to steal from a book technically wrong. I always butcher this author's surname. Um, so maybe you could leave it in your show notes, but the book is called Technically Wrong. And an example that they share around the consequences of bias is a woman um, and their gym access pass. So you know how you go to the gym and you got to get a, like a swipey thing to get into the gym if you're subscribed. Um, so after joining this gym, this woman could get into the gym, but this woman couldn't get into the women's bathrooms, like the change rooms, because you also need to swipe it to get into that. And she was like, what's going on? Because like, obviously my access is active because she could get into the gym facilities, but couldn't actually get into the bathrooms. So going back to reception to try and figure out what's wrong, subscriptions are active, your pass is working as it should, not really sure what's going on. Let's try to refresh it. They tried to fix it. The same issue continued happening. And then when they actually drilled down on what was the root cause of the problem, it's because this woman's title is doctor. And the gender that the system had assigned to doctor by default is a man. So this woman could get into the gym and actually she could have gotten into the men's bathroom and the men's change room but it didn't allow her to get into the women's. I hear these stories and I'm still shocked. And I, you know, I'm a woman too. And I go, we live this. And in my head, I keep thinking we're past this when, and then you hear these stories and I'm like, oh, actually we're not like they are still happening. Like that is incredible. And it's, it's like, it's, it's a bias that's implicit because it happened by default, right? Because the person who was designing this um, system and inputting like the logic, they ha hadn't considered that, you know, doctors can be female, <laughs> right? I bet the person who designed that wouldn't have realized the impact of that split decision that they made. I Like, I don't think anybody wakes up and goes, I'm going to design with malicious intent or I'm going to design because I want to single out all of the female doctors in the world. Like at the time, they were probably just doing their job and they didn't realize the long-term consequences. So I always find that really interesting about inclusive design because again, it's not like we make intentional decisions to include everybody, like exclude anybody. Um, but it just happens by default and we don't realize until someone's actually experienced that and they've actually experienced that negative consequence. So it's, it can be a tricky job. <laughs> it can be a tricky job to plan and forecast. It can be. I think that's why there's this like awesome quote that continually gets reused in the inclusive design land. And it's, if you don't intentionally include, you'll unintentionally exclude. And so I think as technologists, we really need to switch on our critical thinking and check our biases and also have um, diverse representation in the teams that create technology. Um, so third story slash example is going back to the iPhone. If the creator of the iPhone is um, 
a man and the founding team of the first iPhone um, were a team of like tech bros, which is how I like to describe them. Um, and Tony Fidel um, on that team talks about in interviews uh, in these last couple of years. And he says, like, it, what keeps him up at night is wondering if only they had considered testing this very sticky device with kids back then. But because none of the team were in a position then with families or like really exposed to young children, they'd never considered what might be the unintended consequences of a device this sticky on young people and children. And he's like, what if we had? Something might have changed and we might not have this like attention pandemic in, and this like these new challenges that we're navigating with young people and their devices. And so if we think about like the makeup of the team, that determines the makeup of the product and service that we're offering in the world. And so I think a, a critical part of being a technologist is like a self-reflection as well as like group reflection on who are we, what inputs are we using to inform our research design and decision-making and who are we impacting, who have and haven't we included and why and why not. Thank you so much for sharing those three stories with us. I think just taking it all in, going back to your comment about holding space for inclusive design is just so important and like taking responsibility and accountability for the impact of the decisions. So something I want to unpack with you, Michelle, is like this, what co-design looks like. How do you actually get the right opinions and perspectives and how do you, when you can so often get it wrong and you will get it wrong, how do you actually decide how to co-design and when to bring people's thoughts and opinions in? Have you seen the... Um... IAP2 spectrum of public participation. No. So I think it actually comes from like community engagement and public engagement. Um, but it's this spectrum of going from like inform, so like low levels of public participation, all the way through to co-design, which is like the highest level of public participation where people impacted actually have decision-making power and they're part of the team um, from beginning to end to deliver whatever outcome it is, whether it's like a new policy, new process, new service. And I think that co-design is like a buzzword, but also like a misused word a lot of the time. I say that it's misused because if we look at the public participation spectrum, Releasing a survey about your product or service and then actioning the feedback from the survey actually sits more on the side of consult. Like you're not informing, but you're consulting because you're gathering feedback from people and then actioning it. But the people that you're gathering feedback from, they're not necessarily part of the team doing the design and decision making. So that wouldn't really count as co-design. And I would say that it's quite difficult to actually practice co-design in our day-to-day -day work, depending on who your target audience is, as well as like your usual like design project constraints of time, money, resources. 
I would say that what good practice looks like is moving towards co-design and also figuring out is a co-design approach appropriate in this context as well as considering maybe the problem that we're trying to solve and the people we're trying to serve maybe they already have their own solutions and they don't need us to come in and fix anything we might actually come in and cause more problems and so I think in terms of the topic of co-design I would say that a greater level of intentionality and reflection and self-critique is needed in the industry, particularly in the tech space, to really figure out, are we actually doing co-design or are we just labeling consultation <laughs> as co-design? Who are we actually co-designing with? If we actually wanted to co-design, then who do we need to involve? And are we willing to accept a possible outcome that is, we don't need our project? That's a huge one. If a possible outcome is that we don't need our project. Um, again, I mentioned like a sunk cost fallacy with your career. That's like a business sunk cost fallacy that like, what if your research you're doing proves that your solution isn't needed? Like, do, does that mean you like ignore it and get some, you know, some data bias there and go, oh yeah, that's just an input we keep going anyway. Or do you actually go, huh, this turns out like, I would say that's general business advice you see all the time outside of this too, where people will start researching something or say it's user research, feel out, you know, realize that's probably a bit redundant and then they kind of go and do it anyway. But I imagine in the space of inclusive design though, it's like that, but it has actual people consequences, not just business consequences to kind of go ahead anyway when it's not necessary and have again, negative, negative connotations from it. 100%. And it's hard for businesses to admit that actually they've gone on the wrong track and they've spent all of this investment on something that's not worthwhile pursuing. But actually, in a way, you're also preventing like future loss of investment by stopping it early and by like pivoting or changing tact. There might be a new sticky insight that shows that here's a different direction that we can pursue and will actually have better business impact, better people impact, better planet impact. Who knows, right? And I think that's like the magic of being in this field, like the ambiguity, but also the possibility. Yeah. How, Michelle, how is this industry and topic regulated? Or is it not? Is it like just everyone's having a go and there's certain institutions set up like where you're currently working who are being like the leaders in this space. Okay, in terms of like regulation, it's still a bit fuzzy, especially in like the technology space. I know that there's a lot of work going on to find a way to regulate like ethics in design and technology. But at the very least, we have the web content accessibility guidelines and they're quite robust and a lot there's like regulation around complying with web content accessibility guidelines and we're talking about like the tech space but there's also regulation around like physical space accessibility the issue that or the challenge i would say that we have at the moment is public service for example it's not necessarily clear 
to what level of compliance is required and complying with the web content accessibility guidelines may mean that your digital product or service is accessible, but it doesn't guarantee that it's usable and user-friendly and relevant to audiences. And so it's a bit of a tricky one, like we're not there yet, but I know that lots are happening. And I think it's a matter of time until we define what good looks like. But again, going back to earlier in our conversation, it keeps changing, right? And so it's like, okay, what what does inclusion look like? What's like a gold star inclusively designed thing? And it's just so hard to find a reference for, for that because things continue to change. And so I think the conversations that are happening in this space are around how can we regulate processes and tools that people use to ensure that it's happening, that the approach is done with an inclusive design lens on it. And then the outcome is that, well, we just have to be upfront about what process we've taken, uh, what measures we've taken to be as inclusive as possible. Here are our gaps and acknowledging that we're no one's perfect. Um, these uh, types of people or um, someone in a particular situation may experience more difficulty interacting with our product or service. And that's the next step in our approach to improving our services. I'm not yeah. sure if that really answered your question though, because I don't have like yeah. a, a like yeah. solid, yes, there is. No, that's okay. I just, it's a tricky one because I feel like some companies prioritize it, make space for it. And I feel like just from my experiences, like some organization prioritize it purely because there's a champion or there's an individual with an agenda to make space for it, which is sad because it should already be on the table. Do you have any advice for making space for it? Even if it's small, like what's if your company or where you're working like doesn't have the space for it and is not interested in making it a priority, how do you make that start? Good question. A lot of like my ADP list mentees come to me wanting to ask that question as well because they want to do more inclusive design and advocate for it. And they're like, how do I get started? Because like I think I'm the only person in my whole team or my whole organization that wants to do this. And something that I've learned along the way is we don't necessarily need to have inclusive design in our title to start practicing inclusion and embedding it in our day-to-day. And so even small steps like asking a question of within our pool of users that we're testing with, is the cohort looking kind of homogenous? Like are we testing with the same, same kind of people? What if we considered someone on the other side of the spectrum of, say, visual capability or digital literacy or English literacy or someone that lives outside of metro area, a metro city? And so just bring that up as part of a conversation so that people start thinking differently and start considering, hey, actually, there's there's people out there who are unlike us that may not be able to use our thing because we've pretty much designed it for people like ourselves. That gets like the ball rolling. And then 
um, inclusive design practices can also be brought into just the way that you hold a meeting, giving people space to stand up and stretch, taking breaks, making sure that um, people are sent information ahead of time so they come in prepared and don't have to feel like they're on the spot, they're put on the spot, or um, providing multiple ways of engaging with you. So a lot of the time we might design our usability test sessions to only happen online with a moderator, but maybe someone may experience this better if it's a phone interview or if you go to a location that might be a public space, but between where both of you are based, if possible, or it might mean bringing a support person into the session. So just allowing time and space to consider how we can meet people's different needs um, and respect that. I think that's like a great initial first step. Um, but I think at the end of the day, if you're in a position where you're the only one, then talk about it. Talk to everyone about it because as the conversations build up, then the awareness will build up, then the buy-in will build up, and then you can start injecting more and more of it in the doing part of it rather than just the thinking and talking part. Yeah, that's some really powerful advice and definitely thinking about it from another perspective that I hadn't thought about before. And I think that just comes back to even right back at the start where you spoke about the word design and how that can be interpreted, mean so many different things. And then when put next to inclusivity, um, again, it can mean so many different things. So we've spoken a bit about the past and we spoke about how you got here. We spoke a bit about the present, what you're doing now, what these challenges look like. Um, I think we could flip it forward a little bit and just have a have a talk about the future. And earlier we were saying how rapidly that technology in general, so outside of inclusive design, but how rapidly technology is changing. Do you have any opinions, forecasts? This is like your I told you so moment that you can have where you can kind of foresee any trends or anything that you think will happen in the future of inclusive design. I think it has to do with the other buzzword, AI. <laughs> yeah, it is a buzzword, but it's true. It's so true. <laughs> the reason why I say that is because it's great that like we have like better machine learning capability now. There's lots of different AI tools out there. But the risk here is that people are using these tools without really thinking about data bias and without really checking the sources of where these algorithms have come from. And I think that there's a danger in that because if we think about the biases that exist around us because of like a designer's bias, then this is like that at scale. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I went to a conference maybe a week ago, um, AWS conference, uh, and I went to a few different talks about um, AI and ethics. And one of the things that they had a, uh, it was a chief science and ethics officer who spoke. And I firstly loved the fact that that was her title. I was like, I love the fact that they're making the space that this is yours to own. Um, but she spoke about biases and said that, and we were talking so deeply about the technical biases. And she brought up a really interesting topic that said, 
also as people, we can't forget the problem that we have with automation bias, where inherently people, we kind of have this problem where we're prone to trust or instill added weight or trust on something that we see that's automated. Like we're less likely to fact check it or we're less likely to, um, to question it. And we're more likely to believe it's true um, if it's automated and instant. So um, if, for example, if I manually wrote out a math equation and I did it, I did a long division on paper and showed it to you, versus I used a calculator, you have an automation bias that you're biased to assume that the calculator is probably more correct than me. And um, she spoke about that topic and said that just that's something that's come out in scientific research and she's like she predicts that that's gonna heavily happen in the future even if we try to fix the data problem that uniquely humans we may become biased or assume that ai is probably more accurate just because we have this bias in thinking the technology must be right where perhaps we should question it more the same way we would question people um, and I, I thought that was amazing. And that was a great talk. I'll, uh, I'll put her name in the show notes. I can't recall it off the top of my head, but it's worth, worth looking into. That was like my huge takeaway was uh, the automation bias in AI. That is so interesting. And I think that like that also feeds into what I think are future skills that new, new and emerging designers, as well as like existing current designers need to, need to have. And it's like that critical thinking of being able to question mm. and unpack and not take anything at face value. Like that researcher in us, the curiosity to be like, hey, let's question everything and try to find something that's closest to truth or fact depending on what topic we're looking at. And I think that some of the design education that's out there may be happening in a way that's too fast to be able to develop these skills. Yeah. Do you, do you have any advice then? If we go in and we know that it's moving too fast to develop the skills, like do we try anyway? Do we keep learning anyway? You know, do you have any advice to handle that? kind of intimidating to go in knowing that no matter how fast you learn it's probably going to change equally 10 times faster than you know than that around you yeah I think like that also feeds into imposter syndrome it's like I'm never going to be enough yeah but I think what has helped me with that is recognizing that us as an individual will never know everything but if I continue learning and I continue building my skills and bring in new learning and new insights, then I can better work with other people. And in collaboration with other people who bring in different perspectives and different layers of knowledge and skill sets, then collectively we have a more well-rounded perspective and a more informed way of tackling whatever challenge we're tackling. And so I think the key thing is like, we can't just rely on ourselves as individuals that leaning together, uh, working together and using our collective knowledge and collective skill sets actually will mean better outcomes. So many good takeaways, Michelle. Every time you talk, I'm like, I want to write this down, but we're, we're, we're recording it today. So my little hand can have a break. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just fangirling. <laughs> I always am when I chat with you. <laughs> Before I was thinking of like 
it's the whole like googling your symptoms and accepting you're going to die like yeah you know but actually there's actually a dr google behind google i met her at the medinfo conference there's a real doctor who's like a like a medical practitioner who works for google and looks after like the surfacing of like more credible sources when you are searching dr google with your symptoms and i was like oh it's so reassuring knowing that there's like medical or practitioners who are professionals looking after these like algorithms and the decisions of what information is actually being surfaced to the public. That's amazing. What I love about that is it's like telling me that tech is being responsive to people because they could really easily just be like, oh, it's not a credible source. Ignore it. Like put the onus back on the users. Be like, if you Googled it, you know that comes with a risk but rather than just kind of offload that they've come in and gone look people are going to do it regardless of what we advise them so if they're going to do it we can at least help them do it as safely as we can and kind of it's like lean into that and I, I think that's great that's great to know that yeah rather than reject it they're kind of owning that it's going to happen anyway so we will try to provide some resources to make it as safe as possible thank you so much for coming on and chatting with Gemma and I we're really appreciative of it definitely turned over some stones that I guess a lot of us probably haven't even thought of before and we can go away with how we can make a better impact with our decisions and influence the space of design so I know Michelle you've got a little website that you've been working on in the background are we live can we publish it in the show notes well, when I shared it with you, Chloe, for your feedback, it was actually already live. I guess it was soft launched. Okay, and so we're hard launching. <laughs> I guess from this podcast, we can hard launch it. And that yes. actually gives more of a pressure to action all the feedback that I've gathered from people like you, Chloe, that I sent it to. And they're like, okay, here's like a suggestion. Here's something that I would change. Chloe gave me really useful feedback. I just have been like procrastinating actioning the feedback so yeah let's hard launch it with this you can share the link with your with the release of the potty oh my god is this an exclusive <laughs> <laughs> thanks chloe this is an exclusive episode with the hard launch briefly for those when we put the link in michelle can you give us like too like too long didn't read overview like what is what will they find on your website it's literally a curation of resources that I found helpful on my journey of becoming an inclusive design practitioner. So there are books, there are podcast episodes, there are TED Talks, there are references to different inclusive design toolkits and accessibility resources as well. And it's ordered in a way where if you're just starting, if you start out from the top, you'll be able to explore in greater depth as you continue down the list. It's a living list as well. So there's lots of things that I've used along the way that I'd forgotten about. And I, so I keep adding more to it. And as I continue learning and practicing, there'll be more and more to add. So it's a living and growing list. And it's a, it's a curation to help people who want to continue developing their inclusive design practice to be able to 
find a bit of a spotlight on where to go because there's just like an overwhelming amount of information that's available in the world today. That's amazing. I love that you've put the time and effort to putting that out there in the world. That's like great example of like giving back, sharing the information. And I think it's kind of a nice spin around of making information about, you know, accessibility and inclusive, accessible and inclusive. <laughs> Touche. Touche, exactly. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. Loved having you on the podcast. I'm excited that well, thank you for making the time and I'm excited that Chloe introduced us. This is this is great. Um, I love meeting like like-minded people and, and people who share the same values. So it's so good to kind of you're in you're in our circle now. <laughs> yes. I mean, Yay. thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one day you can fangirl me, Michelle. <laughs> Look, my like relationships with the people that I meet on ADP, I'm always like, it's mutual it's like yeah. a two-way street <laughs> yeah it is it definitely Aww. is <laughs> that's beautiful guys <laughs>